to the worship team. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Johnny. I'm the campus pastor here at the bridge. I was at the Meredith Drive campus this morning preaching, and that makes me aware that I am grateful for 10 o'clock start times, you guys. So grateful for 10 o'clock start. They have church at 9 in the morning, if you can believe it. I could not believe it. I am not ready to preach at 9 in the morning. (laughs) I am so glad that you are uh, with us here this morning on this holiday weekend, Memorial Day. And it looks like we might even get some good weather for the holiday. So I'm grateful for that as as well as early start times, Um, late start times. Today, if you have any questions during the sermon, you're going to have to write this down. Because uh, that number will only be on this slide. But if you have any uh, questions during the sermon at all about the passage, about something that I say, you can text this number right here. And then I will do a video this week uh, on Facebook, either Tuesday or Wednesday, and I will talk through some of those questions. I don't like to say that I answer questions because that is a little too much pressure. But I talk through questions. I, I provide perspective on questions. Uh, and that's a great way for uh, maybe you to stay connected with the, the passage or with the sermon. And you can check that out if you want. Just text your number or uh, text that number right there with any questions. So we are in the middle of our series called Hashtag Blessed. Hashtag Blessed. And um, I'm, I'm aware that Suzanne said woke up here today. She said woke. And that's where we are now, you guys. We're saying woke and hashtag blessed. So congratulations to us. Uh, hashtag blessed. And we have been looking at the Beatitudes. These are uh, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he's telling them what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. And he's, he's giving them a way for them to um, measure maybe their health within the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be uh, living a full and rich life? That's kind of the heart of blessing. What does it mean to live a full and rich life in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus gets started and he starts telling uh, these different disciples the different ways that they can be blessed. And he starts with a list and it sounds very strange. The list sounds very strange. He talks about being poor in spirit mourning, being meek, and being hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own life, none of these things feel like blessings. In my own life, all of these things feel like something I have to suffer through so maybe I can get to a blessing on the other side. But Jesus says, no, these are the blessings. And so we've talked a lot in this series about how our cultural and American ideas of what blessing looks like run contrary to what Jesus says the kingdom of God blessings look like. It's, it's just a different idea of what it means to be blessed. If you're, if you're anything like me, you think blessing means being rich, happy, bold, and filled to the full. That's like the best thing that can happen to me is that would mark my life. I would feel so blessed if that was true about me. I'm rich, happy, full, and, uh, and totally bold. But Jesus says, no, it's something else. And so we've looked at the contradictions between what our culture says being hashtag blessed means and what Jesus says real kingdom of God blessings are. So today uh, we are going to continue in this vein and we're going to land on uh, verse 6, but we're going to read all the way through the Beatitudes as we've we've done every week. If you've been here with us, uh, you're you're probably going to learn these by heart. Um, But I am grateful to be here with you this morning and grateful to have my Bible. I didn't have this at the other campus, My eyes aren't good enough to read off the back screens, you guys. I need this like here. Okay, this is Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. 
He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my whole uh, school career, from elementary school all the way through college, where I took one math class that was called um, The Spirit of Mathematics, it was a wild ride, um, I was always good enough at math to get by. Good enough to get by. Like, I got fine grades, like, I understood it enough that I could connect the dots, and I could, especially on, like, a multiple-choice question, I could process of elimination some of those out and find the right answer, right? I was good enough at math. To get by. And so I thought everything is going to be fine, uh, even with algebra. I could, I could understand it conceptually, and it was okay. And then I ran into a wall called geometry. Geometry. Any students in the house run into this wall? This is nonsense. <laughs> this doesn't mean anything. Um, everything I build falls apart, and I don't know why. No. Uh, the trouble I had with geometry was that until that class, I could do the math in my head. Like, I could see it in my head, I could conceptualize it in my head, and even algebra just felt like a little bit harder versions of what I had already done in school. But geometry is like this whole new thing. It's like a whole new language that you have to learn. And, uh, and it was very, very difficult for me. There's angles and circles, and there's something, you guys, called pi. It's called pi. What is Pi. I don't know. A pi is apparently a magical unicorn number, and if you understand pi, then you understand all the secrets of the universe. That's what my geometry teacher told me, I think. Um, if you understand pi, you're good to go. But I don't, where did pi come from? What are we supposed to do with pi? How do we even know what pi is? Why am I so hungry for pi? These are the questions that haunted me throughout geometry. Those are the questions that I could not work through. So I, I got into geometry, and for me, and there are math teachers here, and you're going to tell me I'm wrong. It's a long time ago, but okay. For me, geometry became all about the formulas, all about the formulas. If I can just get a prepackaged formula and put the numbers in the right places, then I can get at least close enough to the answer to get some points, okay? If I can just work the formula, then I can get the right answer. And that's what it became about. It didn't become about understanding what all of this actually means or why it works. That was not even a consideration I had. It just became about memorizing the formulas so that I could get the answers right. In our passage today, Jesus seems to give us a formula for how to live our lives. This is the Jesus formula. Be merciful to others and you will have mercy shown to you. This is a formula so easy even Geometry Johnny could have gotten it right. Be merciful, get mercy. This is what Jesus seems to be saying in this passage. Here's the formula. Be merciful, get mercy. And that sounds like a pretty good deal to us. In fact, this, this kind of resonates with the way that we often think about the world around us. If I try hard, 
then I'll get good results out. If I show up to work early and I put in my time, then I will eventually get a promotion. If I follow the rules, then things will go right for me. If I do mercy, then I will have mercy shown to me. We want the world to work like this. There's something about us that thinks, yes, this is fair and this is good. And so it resonates deep within us. We want to believe that the world is fair. And so when we read Jesus say, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy, it's easy to think that if we take care of others, then others will take care of us. Because that's really what being merciful means. That's the heart of what this instruction to be merciful means. It means to care for the needs of others. Merciful is kind of one of those big, fancy church, you know, Christian words, and we say it, and we feel good because we knew it, and we could spell it, uh, and then we just kind of say, like, isn't that awesome? But we don't often think about what it means. Uh, the first Beatitudes that we've gone through are kind of about heart postures. They're about who we are. They're about how we, how we believe, how we think, how we feel. They're internal. But mercy is all about the external. Mercy is all about what we do. You can't have mercy in your heart without mercy coming out of your hands. This is an active thing. We do mercy. And so uh, Jesus says, be merciful. And what he means is, meet the needs of those around you. Show up. Show up and be present to the needs of those around you. And Jesus talked about mercy a lot, either directly or indirectly. He didn't always say the word when he was talking about it, but he always is talking about mercy because mercy is a vital part of what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. What it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom, to be one who moves and operates in the light of God and says, I am a citizen of God's kingdom and that's the person that I'm taking out into the world. And part of that is being merciful. And so Jesus talked about mercy a lot. This is the heart of the story of the Good Samaritan. Mercy. Mercy is the heart. When pressed on what it means to love one's neighbor. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? These are the questions that somebody's trying to ask Jesus. What does that mean? Who is my neighbor? This is the story Jesus tells. The story of the Good Samaritan. The man who demonstrates mercy to a stranger in need. And so the crazy thing about the story of the Good Samaritan Jesus tells it, it's a master class in mercy. It's, this is, if you want to be merciful, just follow this story of the Good Samaritan. But the crazy part about that story is that we have no idea what happens to the Good Samaritan. We, he just kind of rides off into the sunset at the end of the story. There's no like, and then he had a really good life. Like, there's no sense of what happens to the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan finds the man on the road, and, and he, he helps him. He, he sees this man who's in need. This man has been uh, uh, beaten up and he's been left for dead by some robbers. And so the Samaritan comes and he sees this man and he says, I'm going to help you. He bandages his wounds. He puts medicine on his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to like a, a hospital type place where he can get better. And he pays for the whole stay and even says, I'll come back later and I'll pay if there's more that needs to be paid. This is like what the Good Samaritan does. And then the Good Samaritan just kind of ghosts. Whoop. Good Samaritan gone. What happens to the Good Samaritan? Was the Good Samaritan rewarded for this show of mercy? We don't know. Was mercy shown to him because he was merciful to someone else? We don't know. Did he have a good life and have good things happen to him because he was such a good guy? He used to just be a Samaritan. Now he's the Good Samaritan. He's got to have a good life after that, right? We don't know. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us that part of the story. 
And the reason Jesus doesn't tell us that part of the story is because that's not the point of the story. Jesus does not tell the story of the Good Samaritan so that he can coerce people or convince people that they should be merciful. He doesn't say, look at what this guy did. He was so good. And then he went on and made a million dollars. Like, Jesus does not want us to have a karmic understanding, a formulaic understanding, that if we put good in, we will get good out. That's not why Jesus tells the story. Jesus tells the story as a way to illustrate what the kingdom of God looks like. To illustrate for the people who are listening what it means to be part of God's kingdom, to love God and love others, to be a citizen of God's kingdom in the world that we find ourselves. Not to convince them that they should do this so that they can get something good back out. He tells it because he wants to demonstrate what it means to be part of the family of God. For Jesus, mercy was never about some karmic formula when you, where you get good out in equal measure to the good that you put in. Mercy for Jesus is not formulaic. Mercy for Jesus is all about God. It flows from God and it flows to us and through us to the world around us. And because mercy is all about God, mercy is what the people of God are called to be about. It comes from God, it comes to us, and then it goes through us to the world around us. This is who we are as the people of God. So um, the Old Testament prophets can be doomy and gloomy books to read. If you're looking for a real great Saturday night, skip Hosea. Don't do it. Nahum's even worse, okay? These are, these are, it's bad stuff in there, okay? It can be doomy and gloomy. And yet I talk about them all the time. Something's wrong with me. Um, Old Testament prophets can be kind of doomy, gloomy books. But if you read the Old Testament prophets and you read closely, you will always see themes of God's mercy running through them. There's always themes of God's mercy toward his people, God's mercy toward the world, God's mercy toward the poor. This runs through all of the Old Testament prophets. And if you read closely, you can always find that. The Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, were, were not very different from us. Not really. They, like us, wanted to be able to have formulas to understand their relationship with God. If I do this, God is happy. If I do this, God is sad. I need to make sure that I do more of the things that make God happy than make God sad so that I can stay on the positive side of the scales. This is human nature, and it's something that the children of Israel did a lot. And one of the formulas that they used to stay on God's good side was temple sacrifice. Sacrifice within the law of Moses, which is what the, uh, guided the lives of the Israelites, sacrifice said, okay, you're going to take what you have, you're going to bring it to God, you're going to offer it to God, and in that offering, you're going to demonstrate that you have a contrite heart, and the contrition of your heart and the offering means that God will forgive your sins. This is what temple sacrifice was supposed to be all about. But like all people, it turned into a formula for some of the children of Israel. And sacrifice became less about demonstrating a contrite heart and more about trying to even up the scales with God. If, if I want to live how I want to live and heap up a pile of bad things like this, that's okay. I just have to heap up a bigger pile of sacrifice on this end. I can do what I want over here as long as I have enough sacrifice to offset it on the other side of the scale. This became a formula for people to understand their relationship with God. Guess what? God did not like that. God was not down with the formulas. And so God sends prophets. 
And one of the prophets God sent was named Micah. And Micah comes to the people and Micah says, guess what? God's not happy. God's not happy. What you're doing, the way you're living, it's not good. This is not the way that God intends for his people to operate in the world. And so Micah says, if you want to be in right relationship with God, here's what you have to do. Here's what you have to do. And so he has this kind of rhetorical conversation. So this part is, is the, a person, just, you know, a proto-Israelite, and the Israelite is saying, what do I have to do to be right with God? This is out of the book of Micah, chapter 6. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Can you back it up one slide? There is no one slide before this. There we go. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is what the, this is what the man says. What should I do? I need to make God happy. What should I do? Shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Should I bring really good burnt offerings? The calves that are a year old, that's a really good burnt offering. Should I do that? What's next? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? What if I bring a lot to God? What if I bring just a huge offering? Maybe God will be happy then. I'll bring a huge sacrifice. Will God be happy with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? That's an expensive offering. Maybe if I bring an expensive offering. So we've had a really good offering. We've had a huge offering. Now we have an expensive offering. And now it gets ridiculous, right? Now you can just almost hear, like, what am I supposed to do here? Should I bring my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What can I do to make God happy? This is the question being asked. And then Micah has the answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? This is it. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. The Israelites want to make sacrifice. We want to make sacrifice. Bring something good. Make sure that we're staying on the positive side of the ledger. And God says, it's not about how good, how big, how expensive your sacrifice is. That is not the point. If you want to be in step with God if you want to live out of God's fullness and grace and love, if you want to be in right relationship with God, here's what you do. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It is not about how big of a gift you bring. It's not about how often you show up to church. It's not about anything that you can do to keep the scales balanced more on the positive side than the negative side. God says you need to get this idea out of your head because what it is all about is acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. It is human nature to want to measure our relationship with God. It's human nature to imagine the scales to imagine that there's some cosmic ledger with positive and negative sides and, and to try to stay on the positive side as much as possible. This is human nature. This is why the Israelites wanted to be able to bring more sacrifices to offset the sin in their lives. I can do what I want, but I can still offset it and stay in right relationship with God because they saw it as a scale. We want formulas and measurables that we can punch into our spiritual calculators to find out how near or far we are from God. We're all like mercy actuators, right? And we're punching it all in, and we're going to find out what's going to happen. Are we getting, is our fire insurance, you know, up to date? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we want to know, how's our relationship with God? Here's the thing, though. Mercy isn't supposed to be measured. Mercy is not supposed to be measured. 
as much as we want to measure it, as much as we try to measure it, as much as we see it as something that can be measured in our lives, mercy is not intended to be counted up and placed inside of a holiness spreadsheet. It's not supposed to be quantifiable. Micah does not say, go and love 15 mercies. Go and love mercy times 3,000 for you Avengers Endgame fans, right? Like, there's none of this. Like, Micah does not give a number. He gives, he gives a heart position. He says, you want to measure. Here's how you measure. Is your heart right with God? Are you acting justly? Are you loving mercy? Are you walking humbly? These are not quantifiable things. He says, this is a heart posture for God. There's no way to count it up or quantify it. Either mercy is happening or it isn't. And that brings us all the way back to Matthew 5, verse 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If this isn't a formula, then what is it? Because when I read it, that's what it sounds like. Do this, get that. That's how it reads to me, through my Western eyes, through my American eyes, through my whatever eyes. This reads like a formula. If it's not a formula, what is it? It's not a quid pro quo, so how should I understand it? What does it mean that I will be shown mercy if I am merciful? What does that mean? So this is Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero uh, was a Catholic priest in El Salvador. He was born and raised in El Salvador. He became a priest, and then eventually he became an archbishop in El Salvador. Oscar Romero was kind of a big deal there. And during his life, El Salvador was mired in political and social upheaval, which left many people in the country poor and needy. I think this is still the case with El Salvador in a lot of places, that political and social upheaval has created a sense uh, where people are poor and needy. That's just what happens when there's upheaval in those ways. But the, the warring factions within the social and political arenas wanted people to be poor, Because if you have poor people and needy people who aren't getting their needs met, then you can turn them into angry people, and you can turn angry people into pawns in your political game. And so they really liked that these people were poor. And when the Catholic Church came and started to care for the needs of the poor, when people like Oscar Romero showed up and started to show mercy to the world around them, they were met with trouble. They were threatened. They were attacked. They were driven out of the country in some cases. And in 1980, Oscar Romero went on the radio to preach a sermon to give an address, and this is what he said. He said, In less than three years, more than 50 priests have been attacked and threatened. Six are already martyrs. Some have been tortured. Even nuns have been persecuted. The radio station and educational institutions that are Catholic or of a Christian inspiration have been attacked, threatened, intimidated, even bombed. Why, he says. That part of the church that has been attacked and persecuted has put itself on the side of the people and went to the people's defense. Here we find the key to understanding the persecution of the church, the poor. Oscar Romero says, when we show mercy as the church, when we go out and and meet with people and meet their basic needs and help the people, what we get in return is persecution. Some of us have even been martyred. Some of us have died for this, to show mercy to the world around us. 
That's what Oscar Romero and the priests in the church in El Salvador were finding when they showed mercy. Because of the mercy that they showed, they were being threatened, persecuted, and even killed. But in the face of all of that, Oscar Romero kept on going, kept on showing mercy, kept on pushing. Until one Sunday, after delivering a sermon at a small hospital chapel, Romero was killed as he stood in front of the altar. On a Sunday morning after his sermon, he went down to the front of the church at the altar and he was killed because of the mercy and the love and the care that he was showing to those around him. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who live out God's heart for mercy, for they will find their comfort in the hands of God. Blessed are those who care for the world around them, for God will welcome them into eternal life. Blessed are those who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God, for they will walk with God along the street of gold. There are places in our life where we will show mercy and mercy will be shown to us. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that there are times in our life where we will demonstrate mercy and mercy will be returned to us, where we will do something good and we will get something good back. The world does work like that sometimes. In fact, this last week, the Des Moines Area Religious Council gave our church an award as a, a, a recognition, as a way of saying thank you for showing mercy. After the floods last year, our church did the 50-50 campaign. We gave away some money to the community to help people rebuild after the floods. And, the, and we were recognized. I think that's a type of mercy in and of itself. We were recognized. Suzanne got to go to the banquet. It's a beautiful thing to be recognized for your mercy. But not all of our mercy is going to be recognized. Some of our mercy won't have any immediate result at all. There is no formula, no math, no spreadsheet to determine what our return on mercy investment will be. The ROI is hazy on mercy. What will the return be? We don't know. We don't know what the formula is to figure that out. And yet, in the face of that reality, we are still called to show mercy, and we are told by God that we will be blessed when we do so. We know that we serve the God of mercy, the God who goes first and doesn't expect anything in return. This is why we are merciful, and this is why we will be blessed as we show mercy to the world around us. Maybe not in the immediate, maybe not in this life, maybe not in any way that we can feel tangibly right now, But it's a guarantee given to us by the God who sent his own son, the greatest mercy of all, that we can be called sons and daughters of God because God went first out of his deep love for us. That is immeasurable mercy. That God loved us before we ever loved him. In the face of that mercy, our response is to just act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Not to ensure that we get our reward, not to ensure that we get some mercy back, not to ensure that the ledger gets balanced or whatever it is. We do it because God did it for us. There's no measurement big enough to quantify God's mercy toward us. And that should inspire and motivate us to offer that same type of mercy to the world around us.
Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your mercy when we stop and think about it. When we think about the truth that you taught us in Scripture, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That nothing we can do could ever make us add up to how beautiful and how perfect and how good you are. And yet, God, you demonstrated your mercy to us. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they are imitating their Father in heaven who has abundantly provided mercy for them. God, I repent of the ways that I keep a spreadsheet in my head of acts of mercy compared to return on investment, of times where I look at a situation that you are calling me to be merciful into, and all I can think is, is this really going to be worth it for me? Is this really going to be worth it on the other side? Am I going to get anything out of this at all? That I look at situations that are calling for me to care and love God and I ask questions like that. God, you do not ask those questions. You give mercy freely. Love flows and pours out of you. And I pray that it would pour onto us here this morning that we would be filled up and that we could get away from the scales and the ledgers and the return on investment and that we could be vessels for your mercy this morning. We love you, God. And we are overwhelmed and amazed by your love for us. Fill us up, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.